find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. We are the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes like serial killers and the random one-off murder. We will tell you about bizarre occurrences like alien abductions and monsters in the dark. And we just might get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. At the very end of every show, we like to lighten things up and cleanse the palate from the tragic and terrifying stories. So we end our time with a chaser. You might get to hear crazy stories about our pets or just silly movie recommendations. Give us a listen. We are the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. Everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome back to another caffeine-fueled lazy Sunday edition of my favorite hobby. This is my second self and I. I am Matt. The second self part's the echoey voice that chimes in from time to time. He's kind of just part of me that I can't seem to get rid of, so I figured why not just write him in sometimes as a framing device. Thank you to everyone who listened last week to my take on Jack the Ripper. Truly hope you enjoyed that. I like many others, have not been enjoying slowly baking to death in the brutal heat of the South. It's been like 105 degrees every day for two months straight now. It's ridiculous. So I figured why not lean into the misery with a little trip in the time machine to a barren wasteland of a not-yet-developed part of the country and go explore the Wild West. Yeah, the Wild 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 West, with a story about maybe one of the less well-known of the Wild West outlaws that, you know, people tend to think of. You've got your Jesse Jameses, your Bonnies and Clydeses, your Butch Cassidys and Sundance Kidses, all of those guys and gals that you normally think of. Wired Erpses, all of them, except today's guy. The Kentucky cannibal Boone Helm was someone I'd only heard about in passing while doom-scrolling one night. You know, I saw the name on a post somewhere. And my brain did that thing where, you know, it's latched onto it, stashed that name away for a later date, which I guess is today. I do have to point out, though, that as far as motivation goes, this man has me beat by many, many miles. Oh boy, I'm trying to juggle a lot of different moving parts right now, which, you know, sometimes hinders motivation. And, you know, I just lack discipline in general. I'm always talking myself into shit that I don't need. And then other times, I have to motivate myself into being motivated, and then ride that train for a little while, but Levi Boone Helm never had any of those problems. He was always ready and itching to get on with the next thing. I also found some uh, Wild West insults and jabs. Thank you, Legends of America. Very helpful website. So expect the occasional 19th century crazy jargon peppered in every now and then. Should make sense for this show anyway. As ruthless of an individual as there ever has been, Levi Boonhelm was mean enough to hunt bears with a hickory switch. I like that one. And he's also been called the Dahmer of the Old West, or you know, some variation of that epithet for many years now. Or maybe I just made that up. I could have sworn I saw that somewhere, but I can't find that now to reread it. But if you know, if what I remember about Dahmer is correct, there's a 
glaring difference between the two men. You know, I mean, apart from them being born a hundred years apart and totally having different motives, but the real difference I'm talking about is that Boone seemed to actually enjoy killing and robbing and maiming and raping and whatever other negative ing verb you want to attribute to this guy. He probably did it and enjoyed it. Both of those guys definitely ate lots of people, but Dahmer's cannibalism was a lot more complex than Boone's. In Boone's case, I think the eating people part was more just for survival. Dahmer wanted his victims to be a part of him or you know, some shit like that. But that's a whole other thing I'm not going to get into right now. Speaking of meows, this cat we're talking about today has a crazy life, and I'm going to do my best to tell you about as much of it as I can possibly find with the limited resources available to me. Oh yeah, I should probably also point out that this is a comedy show, and in between the murders and other naughty stuff, I'm going to try to make some jokes and say things in funny ways to make this a fun show to listen to. I mean, you went through the trouble of clicking that button a minute or two ago. The least I can do is be entertaining. So, you know, expect lots of goofy voices, some high-energy weirdness. I might have some new music I can throw in if I get it done in time. You know, just to kind of help set the scene a little bit. And since I record where I record, you might hear my loud-ass needy cat. But, you know, I wouldn't worry about her too much. Alex, is the time machine ready? Sweet. That extra tune-up I had Night Mechanic do for me really came in handy. If you don't know who that is, listen to one of the anthologies. He's fun. Well, that settles it then. Let's get our asses over to the time machine and head on back to Missouri in 1828. The Kentucky Cannibal was born July 28, 1828, somewhere in Kentucky, but his hard-working parents, Joseph and Nancy Helm, moved the fam down to Missouri shortly after he was born. They also had 11 other children, because that's what you did back then, so the move may have been more of a financial strategy from the parents than, you know, necessity. Boone was a tough kid that liked showing off how tough he was. Any kind of activity that would let him show off how strong he was or how fast he was, Boone was there for it. Anybody ever watch, you know, old westerns? There's this really cool thing they do where sometimes they throw a bowie knife into the ground and then gallop by on a horse and pick up the knife without getting off the horse. Pretty sure they got that idea from old Levi here. Okay, maybe he didn't invent that, but he was known to have done that a couple of times at least. And I'm not entirely sure what he did to end up here. Based on what we'll see later, probably drunken public nuisance related shit, but he decided to express his contempt for the law and societal obligations in a really funny way. He'd gotten into some sort of trouble with the laws, but instead of dealing with the consequences like a normal person, he decided to saddle up, ride his horse on down to the courthouse, then ride the horse up the steps and into the courthouse, and then verbally assault the judge. He's riding a horse indoors, in the middle of a courtroom, and then tells the judge to fuck off. That's amazing. Hey! Just who in the hell do you think you are up there sitting in your judge chair all high and mighty? Well, guess what? I don't gotta do a goddamn thing you say. If I wanna drink and fight, that's my business. You know what? Fuck off, judge. I'm out of here. And then he just fucking... How did he get out of that interaction without getting in more trouble? <laughs> what? And also, I'm pretty sure horses can't go downstairs, so how did he get out? With Maybe he jumped over the fence like Epona in Ocarina of Time? I, I don't know. So this is something I can relate to pretty hard here. Boone realizes that the single life sucks, so in 1848, he got married to Lucinda Browning, had a kid, and became an even bigger problem when he figured out how much fun whiskey can be. Woo! I can do anything forever! I'm gonna ride my horse inside my own house and get drunk and beat my wife! Woo! Which is exactly what he did. And probably at least verbally assaulted a few other people whilst on horseback. 
Well, the horseback hassler wasn't married for very long. Lucinda dumped his ass and filed for divorce. Here's the thing, though. It costs money to file shit in court, so you think Boone's gonna pay for that himself? Of course not. He's got whiskey to drink and faces to punch and horses to ride into other people's houses. He's too busy for that shit. So it's time to make a withdrawal from the First National Bank of Dad, which, of course, ruins Dad and his reputation in town because divorce was a huge deal. Don't bother getting all friendly and howdy-doody with that Joseph Helm. That son-of-a-bitch and bastard's bastard-ass son-of-a-bitch kid got himself a divorce the other day. I tell you what, that old Boone's old crooked-ass son-of-a-bitch could I swear he could swallow a nail and have it come back out of corkscrew. Did people really say that one? I don't know about that one. Dad's ruined reputation could also just be because, you know, Boone was an asshole and they knew his dad because they all lived in the same town. Two years later, in 1850, Boone says he's tired of this place and nearly everybody in it, plans to make a trip out California way, but then, you know, he doesn't want to do it by himself. It's lonely out on the trail. That's where Littleberry Shoot comes into play. Love these old names. One of Boone's cousins he is. Boone asks him if he'd like to accompany him on a little adventure. But I think Shoot was just trying to tell him what he wanted to hear. Boone wasn't one to take no for an answer and was probably shit-faced when they had this conversation. So Shoot tells him, yeah, sure, I'd love to go with you to California. Sounds fun. And they go on about their day. And at some point, Boone figures out that Littleberry wasn't being totally truthful with him. So he goes over to his house to figure out what's going on. Hey! Since I hear about you not wanting to really go to Texas or California, huh? Thought we was kin. Well, we is kin, Boone. It's just that I got a lot of stuff to do. It's gonna take a while, man. And this next scene that plays out, completely normal, totally run-of-the-mill thing to do. Um, Boone whips out his bowie knife and stabs Shoot through the heart with it. Whoa, damn, Boone. Yeah, do not tell this man no. So with Littleberry dead, Boone sets out toward the west, but is tracked down not long after. See, that's the thing with killing someone at their own house especially someone you know, and whom was related to you, and whom also lived in the same town as you, word's probably gonna travel pretty fast. So the Littleberry posse tracks down and captures Boone, and thanks to his apparent insanity, is immediately sent to an asylum. But don't worry, we've got quite a bit more Boone to get through. His story's far from over. He quickly malingers his way into a casual relationship with the guard and escapes shortly after that, finally making his way out west in search of riches or maybe gold. Or... There's also legend of a wild steed that has been said to not only be able to go upstairs, but to come back down them as well. Somewhere in the untamed wilderness of the American West is a legendary stair-climbing horse named Dudley. Or is there? While on the hunt for maybe legendary Dudley, Boone makes his way out west, murdering many people along the way. Robbing, raping, shooting, stealing, killing, raping. He likes rape. He does whatever and whoever he wants, whenever he wants. That was a Blazing Saddles reference, by the way. Also, by the way, this is all right in the middle of the California Gold Rush, and I found some interesting facts! Remember a few years ago in the story when Boone got married? That was in 1848, a time in California's history where there were barely a thousand non-native people living there. That is a weird thing to think about. Well, by the time he got divorced two years later in 1850, California's population had literally exploded with immigrants coming over to try to make it rich, and we are now well above 100,000 people within the space of two years. That's fucking crazy. There were also no banks until 1854, and around up to 1860, the female population only ever got up to like 19%, so less than a fifth of the people that were there were women. 
So the only way to store your money was through private banks run by individuals who probably had way too much power. There were a shitload of people there all trying to do the same thing, so the competition, coupled with the you know, overall lawless nature of the Old West, probably helped fuel all the bandit and outlaw stories we have now. Panning for gold and other mining-type operations were dangerous and had you know, inconsistent degrees of success, and the only way to get attention from any woman was to pay for it because most of them were DIRTY DIRTY WHORES! So you've got all that going down over there well before he even sets out on his little journey, so just keep that little thing in mind. Boone zigs and zags his way out west and eventually starts to turn back more north and then back east again in order to evade, you know, whomever he had recently wronged. Took him up until 1858 before he made it up to the Dales or Dallas, Oregon Territory. I'm not sure how to say this one. D-A-L-L-E-S. I want to say Dallas because that would make sense, because we love naming shit after shit that's already existed, so kind of not a surprise that we even have a Dallas, Oregon, but that's where Boone is right now, and he is there with another half-dozen salty, gruff mountain men, none of whom knew each other. So now the plan was to hoof it over to Fort Hall, Idaho, and get some taters, and then onwards from there to Salt Lake City to go see what the Mormons are up to, I guess, I don't know. But before they set off, Boone has a little secret to tell them. He says... Many is the poor devil I've killed at one time or another, and the time's been that I've obliged to feed on some of them. Talk about a fucking pep talk before setting off on a dangerous journey. A room full of six probably angry and tired men who don't know anything about each other were just told by the guy that gathered them all together in the wilderness that sometimes he kills and eats people, and we're supposed to follow him through the mountains to go maybe find some gold? Are, are we really doing this? Uh, Alex, are you... Seriously? Oh, this is the plan? Are we sure? No, we have horses. It'll be fine. How are we going to fit six large-ass men on three medium-sized horses? Or did they all six have their own horse? I'm not certain about the total number of horses available to the party, but I feel like based on what we'll see later, it's probably less than the amount of people traveling. Now, as you might imagine from almost any story about a mountain expedition, the next part of the journey not going to be an easy one. Being on horseback, supplies are already critically low, and traversing through the mountains landed them in a skirmish with a tribe of natives that really didn't want them there. Not being well suited for battle, they were forced to flee and were now stuck trying to figure out where in the hell they were. Eventually, they found the Bear River that snaked back toward the east and finally finding familiar territory around Soda Springs. Left with no other options, the men killed their horses, aww, ate them, and then used the hides to craft some makeshift snowshoes. There it is. And in the harsh mountain conditions, the party soon found themselves with only two remaining members, Boone and a man simply known as Burton. It's the Boone Burton Variety Hour, y'all, featuring Dudley the stair-climbing horse. Woo! The rest of the party had either died of exhaustion or been left behind to keep the hindering of the rest of the group, and Boone and Burton found themselves in an abandoned cabin not too far from Fort Hall. They're almost there. Burton has completely given up hope, though. He's snow-blind and exhausted tells Boone that he can't go on anymore and to just leave him. I'm snowblind, exhausted, my favorite shirt sleeve is ripped, my nose won't stop running, kinda got a fart, just leave me here to catch my breath for a while and I'll get going on my own eventually. Boone doesn't have any problem with that and sets out to go in search of supplies at a nearby abandoned stockade, but finds it completely void of any useful materials or food. And he returns just in time to hear an enormous fart going off inside the cabin, a grim sign that his last remaining trail buddy had just perished. Oh man, it's lonely out on the trail. A classic Old West case of terminal flatulence, he'd farted himself right to death right then and there, alone in the cold abandoned mountain cabin. No, he fucking didn't. 
Okay, fine, he shot himself, but that's, you know, it's a lot less funny. If you are concerned about Boone getting lonely out on the trail, you can set those worries aside, because when it comes to making it to his destination, he'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry. Because, baby, there ain't no other food to eat. Boonhelm hates the taste of feet. Don't care if it makes you weep. I gotta get something to eat, Burton. You won't, you won't mind if I just take this thigh, right? I'm just gonna take this. He's taking Burton with him, literally and figuratively. Remember, we're talking about a man widely known as a Kentucky cannibal. He's not gonna be lonely out on the trail. He's got Burton with him. You know, he was probably also glad that Burton chose to shoot himself in the head. That meant that the leg meat was still safe to eat. I mean, sorta. Don't, don't eat people. It's super bad for you. Boone didn't care, though. He chowed down on one of the legs and wrapped the other one up in an old flannel shirt so he could save it for later. That's a weird thought. Having sated his hunger, Boone drapes the other leg over his shoulder and marches onward toward the east. He makes his way over to an abandoned camp where he is found by a man named John Powell. Despite being initially startled at everything that was Levi Boonhelm, John offered him clothes, food, and accompanying passage to the Mormon settlements nearby Lake City, Salt Lake City. Huzzah! My destination is in sight! This man, John Powell, also kept a diary about his travels on his person, and after his meeting with Boone at the camp, had this to say about it. It's a longer entry, so I'm gonna kinda paraphrase a bit here, but I'm really glad I found this. Boone and his company left from the Dallas, Oregon Territory. I'm just gonna say Dallas, fuck it. They left from the Dallas, Oregon Territory in October of 1858. Seems like winter wouldn't be the best time to leave. Like, could they have not waited until spring? Really? On April 10th, 1859, that's when Boone approaches John's cabin just outside Fort Hall and loudly inquires, Who owns this shebang? John answers the door and is met by a, quote, tall, cadaverous, sunken-eyed man dressed in a dirty, dilapidated coat and shortened drawers and moccasins so worn they could scarcely be tied to his feet. I have never seen someone ever described as cadaverous. He looks like... Imagine opening the door and seeing a background extra character from a fucking zombie movie standing there and he wants something from you. That would be fucking terrifying. So John, being a man of great convictions, asked Boone to tell him his story. I would have just slammed that fucking door. They left in October 1858, heading out to Camp Floyd in Utah Territory. They made it to the Raft River where they were attacked by the Digger tribe and were forced to flee for several miles. Fortunately though, none of the men were killed during the pursuit. That night, while taking refuge on the Bannock River, one of the two sentinels, a you know, lookout for the party, was killed and the guy that killed him stole one of the party's horses. And then they continued on towards Soda Springs and found a cabin near Thomas Fork. Right around then, winter sets in, and that's when they have to kill and eat the horses. Aww. By then, the party had been dwindled down to just Helm and Burton in that other cabin, and the other members, you know, they left them behind so as not to pose a danger to the rest of the group, and now we all are all caught up to speed. Hell meets Burton's leg, saves the other one, meets Powell, and then fucks off without thanking or even paying him when they reach Salt Lake City, despite him having like $1,400 worth of stolen coins on him at the time. How much would that weigh? That's gotta be like 30 Holy shit, there's actually a calculator for that. Just for the sake of argument, let's say that those coins for Boone, they had weighed about the same as a quarter from today. That's still 70 pounds. On top of whatever other stuff he had to carry with him, which at this point was on foot. They already ate the horse. He's on foot. That's crazy. 
Okay, so I got more curious and found that the most common form of currency in the Old West was the Morgan Silver Dollar, which weighs in at 26.73 grams, the math of which works out to being around 83 pounds. I guess they're slightly heavier than a quarter, so... Just a few funny comparisons for other things that weigh around 70 to 80 pounds. Imagine you're hiking through the woods while also carrying two four-year-olds, a large dog, a 10-gallon bottle of water, 636 eggs, which is 53 dozen or so, and I don't know if I believe this or not, but fuck it, why not? Snooky! All of those things weigh right around 80 pounds. 80 pounds or not, I'm not taking Snooky with me fucking anywhere. Oh, also that reminds me of this maybe true story, I don't know. One of my friends told me one time that he stole some weed from Snooky when she left her car at the place he worked and they found a dime bag in the glove box. I don't know how much of that I believe, but either way... We have gone way off the fucking reservation here. Let me get back to the we'll fucking we'll go back to it now. Boone, having left the company of John Powell, now finds himself in Salt Lake City and in the presence of a great many Mormons. You know what? Hold on. I'm gonna fill you guys in on something real quick. I, the moment I started to record this episode, my neighbor got home, so I'm having to periodically wait until I stop hearing floorboard noises from above me. This is this is fun. This is the life of a podcaster, you guys. Boone got himself in a lot of trouble while he was in Salt Lake City, too. It, is that really surprise anybody? He was hired out as a Danite, which I think is sort of like a Mormon hit squad. Didn't know they had those. It's a small subsect of Mormonism that is not afraid to use violence to achieve its goals. It, I looked at that very briefly, but I think that's you know, super cliff notes. Well, Boone killed a couple people on behalf of the Mormons that had hired him, but... Of course, the fallout from which forced him to go out further west and eventually back into California. He was not there for very long. Weird! Somebody in a town full of religious fundamentalists didn't like that you murdered someone while kind of in service to that religion? That's super weird, right? On the way back to California, he meets a man that operates a ranch just outside San Francisco. How do you think this is gonna go? This man takes him in, shields him from the numerous violent angry mobs that were certainly after him at this point, and to show his thanks, Boone robbed and murdered him. Thanks, buddy! I mean, I guess at least he didn't eat the guy. And he also probably didn't thank him either. And I wonder if he'd ever even heard that phrase before. Was thank you, or gratitude was probably not a concept in a lot of these gold rush type characters, I bet. Very feral. Type. That's a good word for this guy, feral. He's soon tired of California and the apparent lack of ranchers to rob and murder, so he ventures out once again to the north and lands himself in Oregon yet again. We are now squarely in 1862 when Boone encounters a man known simply as Dutch Fred while in Florence, Oregon. Dutch Fred was a fighter, a young scrapper, a kid with moxie, hot, the gusto. Hey kid, you keep that up, you're gonna be the champ one day, huh? You know, this town wasn't immune to the dangers of the Old West either. They had plenty of their own stories about outlaws and murderers. You know, weirdly though, most of the time it seemed like people didn't even really care about murder so long as it was justified. Until Boone Helm made his way into town. It seems like everywhere this guy goes, there's some shit going down. He is getting plastered on the day that he meets Dutch Fred, probably a good day drunk going on, and completely unprovoked, just fucking shoots the guy in cold blood. Dead. Well, the townsfolk didn't take too kindly to that, so they did what an angry mob does best, ran Helm out of town, but they couldn't quite catch him, so he narrowly avoids mob justice once again. 
Northwards we march and on into Canada. Boonhelm makes his way to the Great White North and then the British Columbia region this time. Makes another acquaintance along the way who would unfortunately become part of the cannibal aspect of Boone's tale. Well, I'm guessing the authorities in Canada didn't take too kindly to that, or whatever else he was doing there either, because they arrested him and sent him back to Portland. Get this guy out of here. We are tired of this fucking guy eating all of our best miners, our gold supplies dwindling, and no one else knew how to prospect like unpredictability did. His methods might have been a little, um... Shit, what's the word? Unpredictable? Unorthodox, but he might have done things his own unique way, but damn it, unpredictability got results. Now we might never recover. I don't know the name of the person he killed or if he ate anybody else while he was there, but back in Portland, they got tired of him pretty quick too. They shipped him back over to Florence to be tried for murdering Dutch Fred, but by then nobody cared anymore. Too much time had passed, the witnesses had left town, and so many other people had been killed that were fresher on their minds that they kind of didn't care about Boone. Just whatever, go away. So Boone, a free man once again, walks his happy little ass out of the courtroom, probably on horseback, and then murdered his way back down south into Texas, robbing and killing folks along the way to make a living. But before we conclude with Boonhelm's story, I need to first introduce another bandit, a man whom by all accounts was the polar opposite of Boonhelm. Henry Plummer had been bouncing all over the country in nearly the same places and times as our buddy Boone over there. Except Henry was trying to make an honest go of it. In fact, by 1856, and at the age of 24, he was elected sheriff of the third largest settlement in California. That's pretty impressive. Hell, he even won the re-election campaign the following year. He is on his way to immense political clout. Until he's accused of being involved in an affair with John Vetter's wife. John challenges him to a duel, which Henry wins, marking the first time he's actually killed somebody. He was actually convicted of second-degree murder for this and was sentenced to 10 years in San Quentin Prison in February of 1859, but by August he'd been pardoned partly due to tuberculosis and the ongoing pressure on the governor at the time. I didn't know he could get pardoned due to sickness back then, that's kind of neat. And I guess that whole thing kind of reshaped his outlook on life, and he joined up with a gang of bandits and began robbing stagecoaches and other weary travelers soon after his release from prison. Following a series of arrests and yet another long and interesting life full of debauchery and lawlessness, Henry Plummer rounds up a large group of robbers and bandits that were feared far and wide as the Innocence Gang. Ironic there. He'd basically taken over the town of Bannock, Montana, as that was the site of the most recent gold rush at the time, and proceeded to steal from everybody they could. He'd been re-elected to Sheriff of Bannock in 1863, once again placing him in a seat of power, allowing him to appoint his most trusted friends as his deputies. He then built a gallows in town to punish the quote, villains, and within a month, over 100 people had been killed. That doesn't sound like he's doing a very good job as Sheriff. The gallows, by the way, would be the site of his own death around six months later. At the end of 1863 in December, the riled-up citizens of Bannock, Virginia City, and Nevada City gathered themselves into the Vigilance Committee and set out to capture members of the Innocence Gang. Why did I just tell you all that? Because after Boone was set free back in Florence, he did go back to Texas for a little while, but then he returned to the area and continued on his robbing and killing ways until eventually meeting up with the Innocence Gang in Montana sometime around 63. He was eventually tracked down and arrested by the Vigilance Committee on January 14, 1864, along with four other men whose names were Jack Gallagher, Hayes Lyons, Clubfoot George Lane, and Frank Parrish. But this is the Kentucky cannibal we're talking about. He's not going to go down without a fight. He first claims that 
If he knew what the men were up to, or that they were looking for him, they never would have caught him. Then he swears on the Bible that he'd never killed a man before in his entire life, and after that did nothing to dissuade his captors. Yeah, we don't believe you ever. He confessed to murdering a man in Missouri and in California, and that he'd been arrested a time or two, but that he was not a road agent. Road agents were another thing that people called the robbers or the members of the Innocence Gang. He also accused Jack Gallagher of committing the crimes that he himself had actually committed. What a stand-up guy. I told you it wasn't me, it was that some bitch Gallagher right over there. So it's January 14th, 1864. Boone, Hayes, Parrish, and Clubfoot, and Gallagher are all at the gallows. It's a shoddily half-constructed log cabin with a few ropes thrown over a bar and boxes for the men to stand on before the drop. Boone told Jack while they were standing up there to, quote, Stop making such fuss! There's no use being afraid to die. See, Boone wasn't afraid of death at all. Having been surrounded by it for most of his life, much of it because of him, his biggest concern while standing up there was his finger kind of hurt a little bit. Ow, where did I get that paper cut from? He then gets impatient and says, Oh, for God's sakes, if you're going to hang me, I want you to go ahead and get it over with, and if not, I want you to do something about my damn finger. Give me that overcoat of yours, Jack. Jack looked at him confused fuck off, you don't need it anymore either. And then Clubfoot, completely on his own accord and separate from the other men, jumps off the box. Boone turns to him and says, well, there's another one gone to hell. Next up was Jack's turn on the gallows, and after he drops off the box, Boone said, kick away, old fella. All right, my turn next. I'll be with you in hell in a minute. And then he jumps up, shouts, every man for his principles. Hurrah for Jeff Davis, let it rip and left off the box before the undertaker could kick it away, marking the end of the Kentucky Cannibal, a reckless and bloodthirsty drama queen up until the very end. Henry Plummer, the leader of the Innocence Gang, met his end on those very same gallows a few days prior on the 10th, actually. He tried to plead with the crowd that he'd tell them where about $100,000 worth of gold was buried nearby, but they didn't believe him and began gradually hoisting him up by the neck mid-speech. That's brutal. Hey, if you let me out of here, I'll tell you where I'd have buried a bunch of go- <sighs> So that's the story about Boone Helm and his crazy cannibalistic life. As insane a story as I've ever read about. Not gonna lie, though. I had some trouble figuring out exactly how I wanted to tell this story. There's so many other interesting things going on around his life and during this time that I wound up finding too much information and got kind of overwhelmed by all the potential routes I could have taken, so I hope that was coherent enough for you all to follow along with. But since we talked about a cannibal today, I wanted to very briefly go over why exactly it's bad to eat your friends. In the 1950s, a group of researchers discovered a tribe of people living in the highlands of Papua New Guinea called the Foray that had been battling a very strange illness. Once the symptoms set in, the subsequent death followed very quickly. And this strange disease affected mainly women and children, sometimes killed up to 200 people per year. But why? What the hell's going on over there? The disease was known locally as Kuru, which means shivering or trembling. After researching the family trees of the villagers, the scientists in charge of this situation figured out that it had something to do with the treatment of the dead. In an act of love and grief, many villagers would be cooked and eaten upon death. It was thought that being eaten by people was better than being eaten by worms or maggots. This mortuary ritual was performed mainly by women, though. You know, that they were thought to be able to house the spirits of the dead better than their male counterparts could. I guess since they gave birth, they can accept death? And they would eat everything except for the gallbladder, which I guess didn't taste very good. Eventually, 
They figured out what the problem was. By consuming the dead bodies of their friends and families, particularly the brain, a new type of infectious agent was discovered in the form of a prion disease. Prions are a type of protein found naturally in the nervous system, and this disease that affects them can make them unfold from themselves, leaving the brain literally full of holes, kind of like a sponge. This is what causes the gradual degradation of senses and civility, and is thought to be a leading factor in other diseases like mad cow disease, Alzheimer's, and if you want to know more about it, you can also look into Creutzfeldt-Jacobs disease, which is very similar in nature to Kuru. Thank you everybody for sticking around and listening to me rant and ramble for a little while. If you like that story, or if you just like the sound of my voice and want to hear more, help motivate me to do better by getting this show more popular. Go into whatever app you're listening on, leave a comment or a review or a five-star rating. Whichever thing lets you say good things about this show, please, for me, go do that. I'm currently still sitting at 11 ratings, and if you can hear this, and if you haven't done so already, I'd like to get that up to, you know, 20? Nine more people. That's Come on, that's all I got. I gotta have more than that, right? I could certainly benefit from a good legitimate eye doctor sponsor, wink wink, or something that could help my vision, so leaving a review or rating somewhere free easy thing you can do to help me out i mean i just entertained you for over a half an hour the least you can do is click a few more buttons for me right and if not well just tell your friends either way i'll be happy we have just one more episode to do to finish out the month of time travel tragedies and if you have a suggestion for something you'd like to hear me talk about shoot an email over to my second self and i pod my second self and i at gmail.com I swear I know my own email address, or follow me on Instagram at Second Self Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Until then, I'm off to go rest my eyes and find the next story I want to tell. Make smart choices and stay kind, everybody. Bye!